Hey everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Good day, Real Vision viewers. I'm here with my good friend in the markets, Mr. Kevin Muir. You may know him as the macro tourist on Twitter and in the financial blogosphere. Kevin is one of the most intensely cerebral and intelligent <laughs> traders that I get to speak with on a regular basis. And today we're going to get to tease out some of his uh, latest ideas and views on the market. Kevin, how are you doing today, man? Great, man. It's uh, It's been too long, Tony, that uh, you and I have been together. I'm looking forward to this. I wish I could be in New York City. It just reminds me back to those, what was it, 2018, 2019, when I came to see you and you took me drinking afterwards in the village after our yeah, interview? Yeah. We had a good run around that day, didn't we? We, we <laughs> are well overdue for a repeat, aren't we? Yes, we are. Good, man. Well, we'll get that done in the near future. In the immediate present, though, I want to talk about some of your views. You know, you've had this view that in the coming years, inflation is going to be volatile and probably higher than previous decades. Um, you've written about how resurging inflation is threatening a longstanding negative correlation between stocks and bonds and how a change in this relationship can have profound effects on portfolio construction. So I've got a couple of questions that I'm gonna rattle off to you, Kev. So okay, we'll go one sure. by one down the line, right? Well, there's been a lot of debate about the trajectory of the bond market lately, right? We've got this extremely um, most recent um, hot item coming off the news press, that Fitch downgrade. Um, what are you thinking of the bond market now? How does the Fitch downgrade fit into your view and what's your view on rates going forward? Well, I think the Fitch grade, Fitch downgrade is basically a non-event. And let me just walk you through why I think that. Um, first of all, in terms of actual economic effect of a downgrade, there is none. Like when Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a real economic effect in that that oil was all of a sudden going to be at risk. Grain was going to be curtailed. There was real things that we needed as traders and portfolio managers to reprice. But when it comes to the Fitch downgrade, the, the, the reality is it's one rating agency's opinion about the health of the U.S. You know, debt market. And if everyone just ignored it, it wouldn't matter. So that's the first thing. What scared me was that back in 2011, when S&P downgraded the uh, U.S. debt market, it went from AAA to AA plus or whatever it was. And at that point, it was only one of the three top agencies that had actually downgraded the U.S. government. So it didn't matter because most financial uh, kind of mandates and everything of the, the stipulates that you need AAA says that it's the majority of, the, of those top three. So in essence, it wasn't a true downgrade back then. So what scared me a little bit was when Fitch did it, it actually made it so the majority was a downgrade. So this one had the potential to be an actual downgrade of the U.S. government. What worried me was anywhere that it called for AAA collateral and stuff, and I thought about that. But digging into it, I realized in 2011, when a lot of the kind of 
financial institutions saw the writing on the wall that eventually the US government that could right. be downgraded, they changed those mandates. And so the reality is that most of those kind of old rules about you have to hold AAA securities have been replaced by language that you need to own sovereigns or something like that. So in terms of the downgrade, complete nothing burger, doesn't matter. The reality is that the U.S. government is still a AAA. Yeah, sure, they do all sorts of crazy things in terms of threatening to shoot themselves with this debt standoff. But we all know at the end of the day, they're going to pay it. And if you're sitting there and you're a family office or you're a big sovereign and you need to park a couple hundred million bucks, there's only one real market, and that's the U.S. government. Like, I was laughing. I was saying, like, the Canada... And and is it Belgium or Luxembourg? I can't remember which country is a AAA. And I'm like, you know, there's no way that those two countries, and even me as a Canadian, I'm saying this, there's no way that we're AAA and you guys aren't. And so it's kind of a non-event from there. In okay. terms of in terms of the sentiment, I do think that there's been a dramatic shift in the last, I'd say, couple of weeks. And I think it's really interesting because um you know me, uh, Tony, I, uh, my tagline is all I bring to the party is 25 years of mistakes. And I actually have to upgrade that. I think I need to change it to 30. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. been that's a little valuable, bit longer. That's valuable, that's valuable wisdom to bring to the party, though, Kev. That's right. So, uh, so I, I've gotten a lot of calls wrong, wrong over the years. But one of them that I've gotten right is this kind of uh, persistent belief that the damage from the bond market could be more than anyone expects. And back in January 2022, I wrote a Bloomberg opinion piece, and it was titled, The Bond Market Refuses to Accept Economic Reality. And the reason I bring it up is because at that time, the bond market was pricing in a terminal rate of 185, meaning that that's where they thought the Federal Reserve was going to stop hiking, and, and that would be the top rate that they raised to. And in my piece, I wrote, I flat out wrote, the bond market is wrong. Well, you should have seen the pushback, Tony. <laughs> like, it was shocking to me. There was, I got so many messages from very well-heeled hedge fund managers, portfolio managers telling me that, you know, the, 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 the bottom of the ocean is filled with people who thought that they were smarter than the bond market, okay? It was brutal. And one of the things that I've kind of consistently thought during this entire bond bear market of the past couple of years, and, and let's not mistake it, it has been a brutal bond bear market along the way. Is And in fact, I think that the Bloomberg aggregate between 1982 and 2021 had four years down total. Wow. That was it, just four years. And I said at the beginning of 2022, it, we had just experienced a down year in 2021. And I said, you know what? We might have two in a row, which something that's never been done. And sure enough, it ended up being 2022 was a disastrous year for the bond market and it got crushed. Well, the reality is that all along this way, it's just, I call them the recession bros. Like all the folks that have been just so sure that we're going to have a recession is just around the corner. Recession's just around the corner. And they keep remembering all of the, the money that was made throughout the years from people going long bonds when the economy you know, goes kaput, whether it's you know 1987 or whether it's 2008. The money was always made long bonds. So they have this kind of preconceived knee-jerk reaction to buy bonds. And it's been just unbelievable 
we I, I saw Dennis uh, Dennis from Twenty Two V. He had a survey yes. or the, yeah, where they they talked to all the different uh, their institutional clients. And he says at the beginning of like twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, something like eighty percent of the clients thought there would be a recession, and it was like just off the charts sentiment bearish, and it just continues, continues, and continues that way. Anyways, the long and short of it is that for the first time, we kind of are getting a smell of capitulation in terms of the recession bros are throwing in the towel. We saw it with a bunch of sell side guys. And then what really scared me, and Tony, you're an old floor trader, you know, you've been around. I saw Bill Ackman talk about being short, short the 30 year in size. His tweet, Remember, right? Yeah, his tweet. He said it in size. Yeah. I'm short the 30 year in size. And so one of the things that scares me is when I see a trader bragging about being short anything in size, I like, I just want to run. And so when they have the same position as me, I'm like a little even more scared. Yeah. And uh, I am still a huge bond bear and we can talk about that. But from if we're going to play the squiggles, meaning if we're going to play the next little month or two, I think that we've hit this point of kind of maximum pessimism and it wouldn't surprise me at all if all of these new bond shorts learn the hard way how difficult it is to trade this market well you can all see how it could have played out that way positioning wise though kev right i mean i i was with you in kind of spectating watching the recession bros all calling for the recession all certain that you know gdp was slowing down employment so all of the all of the factors and that necessarily was going to mean that the stock market had a tumble over, right. which is really a correlation that I don't quite understand. But it, it, you could easily see them having been long bonds for that, giving up with another GDP print, totally giving up with a Fitch downgrade and flipping the short. So I agree that yeah. sentiment is probably a little bit weighted on the negative side in bond market now. But can, I, can I just expand on that a little bit? Because I think a, a lot of people talk about this caught, like the commitment of traders. And they highlight this idea that the bond uh, number of bond shorts out there has never been higher. And that kind of flow, uh, you know, flies in the face of what I just said in terms of everybody being long. And I just want to explain to folks that you need to be very careful when you look at that commitment of traders, because if you go and just kind of put in and put in hedge funds and you go hedge funds are short bond futures, and therefore they're going to have to buy them back. What they need to remember is that a lot of, hedge funds, ex, or not a lot, but in terms of those positions, a lot of that positioning is actually something called the basis trade. And the basis trade is something where they buy the underlying bond and short the future. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they do this trade is because the short on the treasury note futures is actually can choose which bond they want to deliver into the contract. And because there is changes in the what's known as the cheapest to deliver, there's actually an option there. And so what's happened is as all of these asset managers and everyone has been so bullish bonds, they've been loading up on futures, meaning that they're like the PIMCOs of the world and the real clients. They've been rushing out buying all these futures and hedge funds have stepped in there because the basis trade has, is extremely attractive. And that's what's going on there. So be really careful when you're looking at the commitment of traders report when it comes to bonds. It might not mean what everyone thinks it means. Now, having said that, just a little caveat, 
when it comes to the other types of hedge funds, which are, you know, trend followers, the CTAs, there is no doubt that those, that crew is absolutely short. Every, you know, fixed income under the sky. And just a little heads up, if you want to follow what they are doing as a group, one of the things that I think is most kind of instructive is go have a look at the DBMF, Donald Bob Mary Frank uh, ETF. It's run by a fellow named Andy Beer. And what they do is they kind of reverse engineer what the CTA's position is. Mm. And so you can see in there all the different positions and you can see that they are, yes, the trend following guys are short the bond market. No doubt about that. So I'm not going to dispute that, but they are not anywhere near as big as the big macro hedge funds and other things like that. And, and the actual end clients and the end clients, whether you look at the JP Morgan duration survey, or whether you look at the bank of America, when you talk about it, it is overwhelmingly still long duration. And that is, that is the trade. Hey, everyone. We're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, I agree that it's very tricky to watch commitment of traders reports when there's a lot of trades that can take place over the counter and stuff like that, Kev. Like you can't just look at a futures market and expect to get the whole picture. So that's some really wise um, guidance to keep an eye on that. With this, this, the new bearish view in the bond market that's getting popular, it's got to be tied, in my opinion, to you know longer inflation, right? Where, where are you shaking out now on inflation? You've been right that you've expected it to be higher for longer, if I'm correct, so yeah. far. And where, where do you stand now at last sale? Okay, so inflation is tricky because, um, first of all, it let's just acknowledge that it was way more than anyone expected over the last, you know, couple of years. And it was even more than I expected. And I was kind of an inflation bull and I, I never expected it to be this much. The long and short of it is, I think that again, everyone is underestimating the importance of fiscal over monetary policy. And this fiscal is actually driving a lot of these inflationary spikes that we've seen. But one of the things I think now that we're experiencing is that we had kind of a strange confluence of events in terms of not only did we go and shut down the economy and turn off the supply side, but then we handed everyone money. And, you know, one of one of the guys that I just love, the strategist I love listening to is Dario Perkins from Lombard. And he says, why do we all assume that this is a regular cycle? This is like the craziest cycle that we've ever seen. To say that this is going to behave like other past cycles is kind of naive because we've never done this. We've never shut off the economy, send everyone home, and then mail everyone a check. And so we're in this kind of process of normalizing everything. And you saw that with the fact that for a while, goods inflation was taking off, and then it rolled over. But now service is taking off, and it's volatile. And so one of the things that I, I, I want to just stress is that I am the first one to say that inflation is not going to go to five or 10%. I'm not one of these people who thinks that we're going to get hyperinflation and that we're going to be experiencing kind of 20% debasement of the currency. No, I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be volatile. 
just like it was in this, you know, what was it, the 70s and the early 80s and in the 40s after the war, up and down. And so I think that we're going to get these kind of waves of inflation. And one of the things that worries me, though, is everyone's talking about this disinflationary wave. And they're saying, oh, no, inflation's coming down and, you know, it's going to continue to come down. What they need to remember, though, is as market participants, we're not trading the actual headline. We're trading what the market has built in, in terms of expectation about forward inflation. And you can actually go look at the inflation uh, forward market using the swaps. And you'll see that one year inflation is like 230. So if we go and we decline from three plus or whatever we are now to two, two and a half, everyone thinks, oh, that'll be a decline of inflation. But the reality is it's actually an uptick versus what we've already priced in. And so one of my kind of key themes is that although I expect inflation to not take off over the short run, I don't know if, if the disinflation is will be as much as everyone expects. It's largely in the market. And, I, and kind of going forward, I still think that the surprises from here will be to the upside. Very interesting. Well, you know, the Fed is going to continue to, you know, try to pour some water on that fire um, with hiking interest rates. You wrote a piece recently called Interest Rate Hikes Can Be Stimulative that I had to read with an abacus and a yellow <laughs> pen and all kinds of guidance to help me get through that. But it flew in the face of conventional thoughts about the Fed's ability to slow down the economy. Can you go a little bit through that, how, what that means to you, Kevin, that, that interest rates can be stimulative and what it means for purchasing power, et cetera, et cetera, about okay. power, sorry. Yeah, this is going to be a long one. Now we're going to have to step back and, and, and kind of dissect what, what I think about how <laughs> the economy I'm works. I'm going to my pet <laughs> No, go ahead. So- one of the, the kind of mistakes that I, or not mistakes, well, yeah, I guess it is a mistake. One of the mistakes that I think a lot of current market participants are making is that over the past 40 years, basically ever since Volcker crushed the back of inflation by taking rates higher, we have solely used monetary policy to affect the economy. Meaning that as the as he rose rate he raised rates he crushed the economy and and the economy came down and then to stimulate it they lowered rates back down then once things got going again they raised rates and this kept going and going and going they used monetary policy to kind of affect and influence the business cycle okay now if you look at this period from 1982 and you look up all the way to 2000 and basically eight, you'll see that each and every time that when they went back to raise rates, it didn't take them to raise rates to as high a level before the economy rolled over, meaning that the highs that would slow down the economy were progressively lower. And then on the other side, when they wanted to stimulate the economy, they actually needed to put rates below the previous lows. And it's just, it's a stair step you know, situation where we kept going down and down and down. During this whole period, we kind of saw the consumer taking more, consumer and private corporations taking more and more debt because that's in essence what you're doing by lowering rates. You're encouraging the private sector to go take more debt and create more money. And that's how you affect the economy. 
we hit a point in 2008 or 2007 where we couldn't lower rates any further to stimulate the economy. You know, we hit this point and, you know, everyone said, I got too much debt for my house, whatever. I can't, I'm not going to take out any more debt. You were basically zero bound. You hit what Richard Koo talks about, the balance sheet recession. And it seemed like we weren't ever going to be able to escape this. Now, they tried a million different things in terms of quantitative easing, Operation Twist, extraordinary monetary policy. And if you look at that, none of them worked. And I'll be the first one at the time I was worried that it was going to cause inflation. I, you know, you'd sit there and you go, well, they've gone and they've, they're going to stick all these reserves into the banking system. They're going to get used up and they're going to get lent out and there's going to be hyperinflation. I thought it would happen. When it didn't, I kind of went down this road of trying to understand it. This is where I got into kind of MMT and understanding because they were one of the few groups that said, no, QE is not going to cause inflation. And I kind of understood it. And I know a lot of your viewers kind of threw up in their mouth a little bit when they heard, hear MMT. And they'll say it's a failed system. And I always say, listen, I don't use MMT as a, a kind of prescription about what I think will be done. I think I use MMT as an understanding of how the actual real economy works. And I always say, trade the market you have, not the market you want. And one of the things that I kind of came to the realization to kind of, I can't remember exactly when I did it, 2018 or 19, I realized that what was missing in the kind of 2007 and eight recovery was fiscal stimulus. And I always argued that fiscal stimulus could create inflation. And it was just, it, a lot of people said it couldn't be done because they read the Rogoff book, you know, this time is different or whatever. And they thought, no, no, it couldn't be done. And I said, nope. With enough political will, you can always make inflation because you can actually spend money into existence. And so this is the important thing to understand is that from 1982 to 2020, they relied solely on monetary policy influencing the private sector money creation channel. That was the only way they tried to do it. There was very little fiscal there was a tiny little bit in uh, 2008, and then it actually turned into negative fiscal when the sequestration happened. So the long and short of it is, it wasn't until COVID happened that we started to use fiscal stimulus as a way to affect the economy. Now, once we started using it, we used it big time. And like, that's one of the scary things. And I'm the first one to admit that I've always, you know, people have said, well, the problem about MMT is that once you start it, it's going to be tough to stop it. I've never disagreed about that. I've always been on that path that unfortunately, once they understand that they can go and affect the economy and create that kind of stimulus, they're going to use it. And that's why ultimately I am an inflation bull. Okay. So now we got to think, um, Tony, I've already forgotten your, your original question. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. We're going back to that explaining why interest rates can be hikes. Oh, that's right. Okay. Interest rate hikes can be okay. stimulative. Okay. So now let's step back. We understand that there's two taps that can create uh, kind of economic growth. And you can say it's not real growth when the government spends money into existence. It, it is. And you might say it's unsustainable. That's a debate for another day. But there's, we can all agree that there's. we look at 2021 and 2022 and we can say no doubt the government actually affected it and created GDP growth. Whether it was real or not, it doesn't matter. It was, it was on a nominal basis, they affected it. So 
one of the things is that in 2020, we had a kind of a combination of factors where it was so cheap to borrow, you know, borrow money that everyone that could refied their house, every corporation that could, you know, refied all their, you know, went and uh, locked in their funding. So everyone did this. So to some extent, you could argue that the Fed needed to raise rates higher because the sensitivity to interest rates was less. And I do agree with that. There's no doubt about it that the, the, that aspect of it is correct. So that's part of the reason that the Fed, instead of having to raise rates to 2%, like in 2018, had to raise rates to five and a, five and five and a quarter before they actually slowed the economy. But here's the little tricky part that I think not enough people are giving enough credit to. The government's deficit is the private sector's credit. Right. So if, if we could probably agree that if when the government went out and gave everyone money and 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 increased their deficit and put two thousand dollars or whatever it was in everyone's jeans, that it was positive for the economy. Okay. It's no different in terms of when they think about their deficit being created by interest rates going up. Meaning that if all of a sudden interest rates go from 1% to 5%, all of a sudden the government, instead of paying out X dollars, is paying out 2X dollars or 3X dollars. And you say, well, that money is now going into actual people's hands. And so, yes, it's different people getting it, no doubt about it. But on the whole, the government is a debtor and the private sector is a creditor. So they are pushing more money into the economy. The only way that this wouldn't be stimulative is, okay, now you're, people are going to push back and say, no, no, but wait, you raised rates, people are going to be less likely to go take out loans. And yes, you're absolutely correct. So it's a, ma it's a matter, matter of weighing, are, is the private sector credit creation kind of, uh, is that declining more than the, than the government credit creation from more deficits. And in the past, we've, we've kind of, we've never created these deficits. They're absolutely huge. And not only that, the, the consumer was more sensitive to rates. So a combination of things that actually what's happening, I think, is that we're having the Fed raising rates. It's not really affecting the economy the, the way they think because private sector is locked in a lot of it. Consumer isn't moving. They're they're not sensitive to it. And not only that, the higher rates are sticking more money in actually the private sector's genes. So it, it's ironically, what really needs to be done if you want it to slow down the economy is fiscal stimulus needs to be withdrawn. Right? Like if we think it through, we in 20 kind of let's say 2009 to 2020. The problem was there wasn't enough fiscal stimulus, and that's why the economy was so, you know, lethargic. Yeah, you know, lethargic. And yet now we have a situation where the economy's flying. And so, so, by the way, from 2008 to 2020, they kept trying to lower interest rates and, and, and push money through that way. It didn't work. Right. It was actually one of the, the, the crappiest you know, recoveries we've ever had. 
And then all of a sudden we do all this fiscal. And yet instead of all saying, okay, now we should be pulling back on the fiscal because the economy is flying. They're doing the opposite. They're once again trying to fix it with interest rates. And monetary policy doesn't work the way we think, especially in a situation where everyone's already locked it in. And there's kind of uh, the Fed is in a really tough spot because the Fed's tools are not appropriate for the job. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. There are some intense read-throughs, and I had some eureka moments. I hope some of the listeners did during that explanation, Kev. I can't thank you enough for that. That that takes me sort of along to um, some of the other stuff that I've been reading that you've been putting a lot of work I've learned more about the 60 portfolio, 60 40 portfolio from you than from anybody in the world. And even how to think about it, how to look at it, what to think about it. In, in one of your posts, you recently wrote now, and this is how inflation can affect that portfolio. This change in stock bond correlation is being underappreciated. Many folks are swimming along a return to the 2009 to 2020 period. We're not going back. Therefore, it's vital we spend time understanding how the 60-40 portfolio and the bond correlation behaved under different regimes in the past to better help us forecast how it might behave in the future. Unpack that statement for me a little bit. Tell me what you think about how the 60-40 portfolio is going to be affected going forward and what we should think about it. Okay, so I think that this is the biggest challenge facing investors in the coming years and decades. If you kind of go back and think about most uh, portfolio construction, it's usually kind of augmented by the fact that we've had this negative correlation between bonds and stocks. So what does that mean? That means that when the stock market got into trouble in the past, the negative correlation meant that your bond portion did better. And so we had this kind of natural uh, kind of offset dampening of volatility by putting these two assets together. And there's, you know, folks like Ray Dalio made himself the richest hedge fund manager in the, in history by taking advantage of that and, and making what he's called risk parity, realizing that he could, you know, lever up a bond portfolio, make it the same volatility as a stock portfolio, put the two together and, you know, Bob's your uncle, you're off to have a great return. And I look at that and go, this was a, this was during a period when we had this kind of sustained disinflation that 1982 all the way to 2020 period. And one of the things that worries me is that if we do get a kind of sustained change in the bond stock correlation, a lot of the uh, portfolio construction will be hampered by it. And, and, and people haven't thought through how to go about changing it. They're all assuming, again, like this goes back to my idea that everyone's long the, the bond market. They're long the bond market because it's worked in the past. And I just like, I think that they need to kind of stop and think about why it might change, how you can take advantage of it and what you need to do for your portfolio. 
So first of all, I just want to say the 60-40 I used because it ends up being just the simplest, easiest way to understand it. Uh, you put this this portfolio together. It's it's a classic one. It's it's with bonds and stocks, and you kind of it, it, the two even themselves out, and it's a great, nice little you know portfolio construction that's done very well over time. But if you look over kind of the last hundred odd years, you'll see that there was four periods of what they referred to as lost decades when the 60-40 portfolio actually went sideways. There was 1898 to 1920, 1935 to 1945, 1960 to 1981, that was almost two decades, and 1997 to 2008, okay? And what you need to remember is you need to look at these in real return fashions, meaning after inflation. And over those periods, the actual portfolios didn't make anything. And they just they just barely kept up with inflation. And so you did not earn anything. And I suspect that we have entered already entered into another one. Okay. We've entered into another period where the 60-40 was going to have a lost decade. Okay. And it's largely going to be a result of this stock bond correlation going from consistently negative to positive. And I think you already saw it because in 2022. We had this, the bond market going down and the stock market going down. It ended up being that the bond market dragged the stock market down, right? And and uh, I always kind of joked and said the fact is everyone thinks that the bond market is going to be this ballast to their portfolio. And, I, and I've been arguing that it's going to be the anchor that drags it down. And I think that that's going to continue. Now, let's just think, I, I when I wrote that piece, I went and found this fellow, Noah Weisberger, from PGIM, he just wrote like an absolutely fantastic series of papers about the stock bond correlation. And he kind of went through what causes, you know, positive stock bond correlation periods. And he talks about one being us unsustainable fiscal policy. Well, I think we're on that. Uh, the knock on effects, which lead to less independence of central banks. Although so far, I would argue that the Federal Reserve has been uh, remarkably independent. I don't know how long that's going to keep. And then the, the third one is supply shifts impacting the economy. And so I kind of think about these things and I think about inflation and why we're going to have sustained inflation. I look at the fact that we have deglobalization. We have the money that's needed for the in green energy transition. And then I have this, what I believe is a change in attitude in terms of the people willing to spend money, the willingness to do fiscal policy. And this goes back again to my argument. Don't trade the market you want. Don't trade the economy you want. Trade the one you have. And one of the things, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Marco Popich from Clock Tower's work. And one of the things he has in his book, Geopolitical Alpha, he says, the median voter is the price maker. The politicians are the price takers. And one of the things that, that I, a lot of folks are missing is that the change in attitude about fiscal spending has changed. I mean, sorry, the, the attitude about fiscal change uh, spending has changed. No longer do we have Tea Party. Like, let's, let's even just take this last budget debate. The reality is that what did the, what did the you know, GOP get? Barely anything. And, and the reason they, they, they did that was because they realized the median fiscal voter 
is completely happy with spending more. We've unlocked this kind of attitude about spending and it's changed the whole narrative. So I suspect we are going to have, you know, sustained higher inflation. Yes, it'll be volatile. It'll go up and down. I'm not going to dispute that for a bit. But over the long run, I suspect that we will have um, 3 to 4% average inflation over the coming decade or a couple of decades. And when that occurs, it threatens the stock bond correlation. And if you think about what that means for your portfolio, it's like I just talked about how Ray Dalio levered up your his portfolio with bonds because they were negatively correlated. Well, if they go positively correlated, what does that mean? That means you actually need to use less volatility. Sorry, less leverage. You need to reduce your leverage because no longer are they offsetting and dampening volatility. They're actually positive volatility. So you need to find another asset that has kind of the 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 traits, the negative correlation traits with kind of a steady uptick that we've seen over bonds, because let's face it, we've gone 40 years in one of the greatest bond bull markets of all time. So it was a great trade. You, you levered it up with stocks and not only did you make money when the kind of shit hit the fan and, and the bond market and the stock market went down, you also just made money from the kind of declining interest rate kind of environment. So one of the things that I believe is you need to find something else. And yes, you can go and you could argue gold, you could argue commodities, and there's all sorts of inflation trades out there. But one of the trades that I think a lot of folks are missing is what's called long, the break-evens. Mm. And break-evens is long tips, short, the government bond. And if you look at this, you know, the returns of like the five-year break-evens, long the five-year break-evens, we've had seven years in a row that's up. It's one of the few inflation protection instruments that didn't collapse right back down when inflation, you know, went the, went the other way. So I really think that that um, this is the period, this is the time when long inflation break-evens will do well. And I just want to contrast this and, and think about it in terms of 1982, when Volcker came and he broke the back of inflation, nobody wanted to own bonds. And the reason they didn't want to own bonds was because they were convinced inflation was coming back. And because they were convinced inflation was coming back, they kept the real rate, meaning the rate of bonds over inflation, extremely high for a long, long time. So you could earn positive real rates by buying the bond market because everyone thought it was coming back. Okay, It took many, many years for that, that kind of persistent real rate to decline. I think we have just the opposite right now, Tony. I think that we people continually underestimate how persistent inflation will be. And I think that that's why we're seeing people rush into the bond market back to the sentiment talking that we're, you know, we spoke about. They keep rushing back in there and they keep remembering the old era, the old era when rates went to 1% or 0% and how much money they made that way. So we are going to have persistent kind of over optimism about bonds and if you want you can't just be short bonds it doesn't quite work that well you really what you want to be is long inflation and that's why i think long inflation break-evens 
is a much better addition to your portfolio in a period of positive stock bond correlation than anything else. Hmm. Man, that's just okay. What's the what's the adjustment that you make, right? I, I could see where you make a case that you know the bond portion of the 60-40 portfolio is going to face some headwinds, you know, with a higher for inflation for longer. How do you adjust that portfolio? Do you go 60-20 and then 20 in break-evens or 20 in gold or 20, you know, or do you adjust it down that way or do you adjust the stock portion a little bit as well? How do you adjust it? Well, if you look at Noah's work, first of all, it, the efficient fro frontier actually changes because of the positive correlation. So you need to reduce your volatility just in general, or you sorry, your leverage just in general. So because the volatility has gone up of the portfolio. Yeah. Uh, and so one of the things that I think that people need to realize is that portfolio returns will become more volatile. That's the first thing. Right. So you need to do that. So yes, you can add gold and and different things like that to try to find other kind of dampening effects and that'll help you. Um, but at the end of the day, you each individual needs to change it based upon what they see fit. I personally wouldn't own any bonds. Like I, I think that they're that bonds in the coming years and decades in real, real return kind of uh, aspect will lose you money. I, I think that they're they're going to continue to bleed. And yeah, I'm not talking about a trade and I get it. We could have a situation where something bad happens in the stock market. And next thing you know, the 10 year has gone from four, whatever, 410 to 3% and everyone's like all excited about it. But let me ask you this. If we got into a real problem with the stock market or with the economy, what's going to happen? What is the Fed going to do? Fed's going to stimulate again. And, and and they're gonna we're gonna be right back at it. And not only is the Fed gonna stimulate again, I suspect that the government will spend again. And so when I think about what inflation is gonna average over the coming years, it's it's not gonna be it's it's gonna be ugly. Like I I think it has a real good chance of being four plus like over you know a long period of time. So when you're buying bonds like at four percent, a ten year, I think kind of the best you do is break even on real terms. Yeah. Like, it, like it doesn't mean you should go out there and short them with both, you know, with both fists, but it just means that I think people are uh, overly confident that bonds are going to be a great investment and, and, and they, and they could be a great trade. And, and, and I just want to differentiate that, that there's a big difference between making a trade that you're, you're going to go and buy for the next, you know, month or two versus making an investment. If you're constructing a portfolio, I think you need to think long and hard about your por bond por uh, portion. And I think that that's just started, Tony. Like, I don't think, I think it's just at the, you know, everyone's still long, everyone's still expecting it. This is gonna be something that happens for years and years and years. Like everyone's freaking out about 4% 10 years. Go look at the charts. Like it's like- yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> You see nothing yet, right? Like that's how yeah. I, yeah. Like we're we're stuck, you know that recency bias is is so prevalent because everyone's remembering 2008 to 2020, but but that's the anomaly. That's yeah. the part that's that that's kind of unusual. Great point. And like you you and I both remember times when the you know tenure was six percent. Hell yeah, yeah, and yeah, that's why you know your your brain just gets adjusted to looking at the prices that are on the screen for so long that you know it's that mean reversion mentality. 
We're getting some good questions regarding what we're discussing now, Kev, from okay. some of our yeah, from some of our viewers. So before I go into some of the other topics, let me hit some of these questions. We got a question from Michael that I may have already asked and you may have already answered, which was adding gold and commodities to offset equities and bonds in that portfolio. And you already went over, yeah, yep. go ahead and tamper around and find your own replacement that can dampen that volatility. Yeah. And maybe improve on your correlation. And, and just to be clear, if you go look at like Ray Dalio, Bridgewater, the traditional all weather fund, like the risk parity, they definitely have a commodity. And uh, I shouldn't speak about them in, in, in specifically. The risk parity, a lot of risk parity funds have an element of commodity slash gold that they put in there. Exactly. Exactly. I want to ask you another question we just got from Assad. So how do you withdraw fiscal stimulus today and what fiscal stimulus still exists? If inflation is supply side driven, why would the interest rate or fiscal side even matter? Well, so that's where. Okay, so this is I got mad at like the MMT folks, even though I'm sympathetic and I like their framework for understanding how the economy works. Some of their analysis after the fact seems really kind of foolish to me. And, and they were busy saying inflation was wholly supply side. And I was like, that's bullshit. Like, you know, like it, it was, you, you stuck $2,000 in everyone's pocket or whatever the number was. It, you, it was you created it on the demand side and like think about what would have happened had they done none you just sent everyone home it would have been a depression so we have to agree that there was at least an element of it was kind of demand side driven there's no doubt though that the that the supply side made it worse because the reality is we couldn't buy anything but if, at the end of the day it was actually a victory for mmt folks because People thought that we couldn't save the economy. They thought that they couldn't actually affect these things, that it would end in a disaster. And it, and it ended up being, let's face it, way less onerous than what all of the kind of dooms got, doomsdayers said in 2020. Like, think back to March 2020. People yeah. thought the world was ending. Like, they, they thought there's no way this is going to occur. Like, we're done. Like, the economy is going to collapse. 1929, like, dogs and cats living together, the whole nine yards. Like, yeah. it was just... And yet it was the opposite. But what pissed me off about the MMTers is instead of saying, yeah, it worked, but we did a little too much, they started arguing, no, no, it's all supply side. But like, no way. It was, there was definitely, you know, the demand side worked. So it was, the trouble is that it was tough to differentiate the two. And that's what my main point is that I don't know how much of it was too much stimulus and how much of it was supply side. And I think we're still working that out. And I think that part of the, you know, I, I mentioned the reasons that I thought that interest rates might be less effective and maybe even stimulative. But another thing that we haven't discussed yet is the fact that when they went and did, the government did all the stimulus, part of it was they handed everyone checks. But another part of it is they handed states checks. Like they went and actually did all sorts of spending. And then not only that, it was followed up with this huge, you know, Inflation Reduction Act, which is basically an infrastructure push, right? Again, that is spending. So they are actually doing fiscal again, again, and again. And so if, if I was like, it ends up being difficult because a lot of that infrastructure is needed. So I'm not, you know, disputing that part of it. 
But if I was, you know, trying to slow the economy down tomorrow, I would raise taxes. Yeah. It works. It, it worked. It, you know, that's that's that would be way more effective than um, Powell raising rates. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. nobody wants to do that. Yeah, that's politically impalatable, though, right, Kev? Yeah. Well, because your options are raise taxes or or pull back on the spending. So, yeah. you know, does this does the spending need to be like? I would argue that a lot of the infrastructure is actually long overdue. Like the U.S. had one of the like kind of oldest infrastructures when you looked at the average age of everything. It was needed. So I think it's needed. But at the same time, you can't go and argue that in 2019 or 2008 to 2020, we didn't have enough spending. And that's why inflation was low. And now that inflation is high, it's not a result of too much spending. It is a result of too much spending. Great point, man. Great point. And I want to take one more question. Um from a viewer before we switch topics at all. David asks, do you overweight value over growth in your inflationary model? And I'm assuming he's talking about on the equity side. And I think that's a good question. What do you think about that? I, I think it's a great question. And um, yes, I do. I do think that that's another way you can play this uh, kind of change in terms of uh, if we do go into a prolonged period of inflation. And the reason is, Although it seems counterintuitive, in an era of little growth, what you had is lower and lower interest rates with less and less growth. And so the one, if you think about when you're kind of pricing out the kind of uh, the value of a company, if a company is growing a lot and all the growth is out in the future, if you put a lower discount rate on that, it means that it's worth more. Yeah. Right? You think about it like in an era of declining interest rates, you wanted to own 30-year zeros instead of two-year, you know, paying out like every month uh, bonds. And so what's happened is that when the kind of over the last decade, we've had this massive move into growth and it's become so expensive versus everything else. And actually, I thought that when 2022 came and interest rates went up and kind of we accepted it, I thought that that was it. I thought we had finally seen a period where value was going to take off again. The growth was never going to get bid again. And this is this is one of my kind of adding to my list of errors that I've made over the third past 30 years. I got this this rally in the in the big cap growth completely wrong. Like I I did. I thought I, I was lucky enough to get really bearish. Um, I got somewhat less bearish at the bottom, but I kept saying, you know, like, don't don't buy this because it's this is a bear market rally, and I was wrong. Like, I I was super bullish on the rest of the stock market, but I was sure wrong on that. And um, I still think, to be truthful, that I'm I'd like that that this is the remnants of this kind of desire to own big cap growth. I think, ironically, it's actually. The recession bros didn't want to buy stocks because they were convinced the stock market was good. Or sorry, the economy was going to roll over. And so what they do is they go, oh, I'm underweight stocks. Well, I need something that's like not correlated to the stock, to the kind of to the economy. I'm going to buy AI. It's the brand new thing. And they rushed into it and created another kind of what I think is a bubble. So um, anyways, I got it wrong. But I think that in the long run, that the value is going to win over growth and it's dirt cheap. Yeah, I, I tend to agree, Kev. We shouldn't, we, sh we can't, I, I'm 100% I'm in the same camp of that, thinking that growth was going to be done, 
right, with this rise in inflation, seeing rates take off. We also got thrown a massive curveball in March that I know that you remember when Jerome Powell on Thursday was uh, Thursday, I think it was March 8th or Wednesday, March 8th. I think he said that the terminal rate was going to be higher in terms of Fed rate hikes than anybody really was expecting. Yeah. And two year note printed 5% that day. And then we came in on Monday after the Silicon Valley bank blow up and the two year note was printing 4%. So <laughs> it's a little bit like the uh, we're a long way from neutral. Yeah, exactly. in 2018. Yeah, so that was a major, as you would call it, squiggle that you know went vehemently against our view that rates are going higher, inflation is going to be persistent, right. and then you had a position for the next three months after that was lower rates and tech straight up, right? You know, and that that was just the kind of the right knee jerk reaction for the market to have, in my opinion, you know, given that severe turnabout in interest rates, and now we've kind of worn that, you know that reversal off where now rates are back comfortable heading, you know, to the upside. So I think we're going to be back in business again, but okay. we'll see. This has been a great, uh, a great path through this discussion. And I think we covered pretty much everybody's questions, Kev. So I want to keep pressing on to cover a few more, um, couple, couple more topics, if that's cool. Sure. Let's do it. Yeah. One of the things that you write about that I'm kind of uh, really interested with is equal weight versus market cap. You know, you've said you've said that the one arb that still exists is that equal weight versus market cap investing. Um, but the reason it still exists is that it's so hard to implement. Is this a good time for this trade, or or can you kind of tease that out for us a little bit right now? Yeah. So I, I do think that this is one of the few arbs that still exists, and I think one of the reasons you need that it still exists is like you need to understand why something exists. Like if, if someone tells me an arb. And I go, well, why does that exist? And they can't tell me why it exists. Then I'm scared of it. Like someone will know something more than me, right? Like, and, and and this is one of the arbs that actually I really think I understand why it exists. And it exists because of career risk. And the career risk is that everyone's benched to the S&P 500. And if they underperform that index, they're going to get fired. So they're forced to invest in a cap weight or sorry in, in, in a cap weighted index yeah. and any periods where they underperform that it threatens their career if you look though at the equal weight index over time and the way if you want to have a look at this there's an etf rsp is the us one and you look at that performance versus the s p 500 spy over time the rsp does better I think it's a hundred basis points. Wow. And if you go through history, I think research affiliates has a great paper that I cited and you look through all sorts of countries, you'll see that on average equal weight outperforms market cap weight and it's slightly less volatile. So you ask, well, if it outperforms, why doesn't everyone do it? Yeah. And the reason they don't do it is because they can't take the pain of having it outperform for three, four, five years, even longer sometimes. And I think that what we're experiencing now with this Magnificent Seven is a perfect example of kind of the career pain that people feel when it goes against them. Um, we had this Magnificent Seven. I think that the, those seven stocks have never been worth more in terms of the top seven and the S&P over the last, whatever it is, decades. Yeah. I went and made this uh, kind of chart and I used the S&P 100, the OEX. Remember the OEX? Mm -hmm. 
Please, everyone used to trade OEX options yeah. for the old, for us old folks, you'll remember those. Yeah. I did the S&P, I did the rolling 20-week uh, OEX uh, return versus the S&P equal 500 equal weight index. So I pulled this up, I did this over time. In um, end of May, it reached uh, 17%. It had outperformed that. So the top 100 market cap weighted had outperformed the equal the SRS or the RSP the S and P 500 equal weight by 17%. If you look over time, the only time this had ever gotten more extreme was December 24th, 1999. The mad rush into kind of the biggest stocks has been just brutal. You know, it started with Stanley Druckenmiller, who was the greatest trader who's ever lived. He gave kind of the all clear in terms of buying NVIDIA and it was just this mad scramble and it got ugly. I know I would hear stories about like value managers that were, they never trade that kind of crap going, I got to buy some NVIDIA. I just can't not be there. I yeah. saw a tweet the other day from a, a fellow that talks to a lot of these pods, like, you know, the, like the millennium and all these different kinds of uh, pods. And they'll say, and he said the biggest holding across the kind of, the universe is NVIDIA. They have they have positions even from within groups that don't trade semis, right? It's just and 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 so what there is is that when you're underperforming the index and this occurs, you just gotta go, I gotta just gotta in, get in. And it just creates this self-fulfilling kind of madness. And yeah. so one of the things that I I tell retail investors is that that a lot of ways they have huge advantages over institutions. First of all, they trade smaller, so it makes it easier to get in and out. But regardless of that, their biggest advantage is that they're not going to get fired by underperforming. They're, they're able to sit through the pain of watching the stock market go up more than, than, than they're going up. And so it ends up being that people underappreciate this risk. And long and short of it is that the RSP will outperform over the long run. I'm pretty confident of that. I don't know if it's going to outperform over the next three months, six months, year. It could get even worse. Who knows? Even as crazy as it is right now, I can tell you that in Canada, I was there when Bell and Nortel made up 40% of the TSA 300. You know, it was one stock, basically. Nortel made up the majority of the index. And it was so bad that they actually created, uh, they were about to, they had just created uh, an index that was going to be Nortel capped and it was going to replace the TSA 300. And just a little, you know, heads up about in terms of timing, by the time an index provider comes around and makes up an index that's going to fix a problem, you know, it's over. Nortel went the other way. Yeah, yeah. And, and so anyways, long and short of it is, if, if you could take the kind of career pain or if you can, if you're a retail and you don't care about career pain, you should be buying equal weight indexes. Over time, they outperform cap weighted indexes. You just converted me, I'll tell you that. <laughs> really, I mean, just you know, just having that factor in your back pocket alone, Kevin, and and knowing why, most importantly, right? The right. R is because people can't underperform because they have job risk. Right. Right. And so if you can sit there and underperform for a little while, you get to make out in the end, you know. So I think that makes the most sense out of all of it. Really, really brilliant thinking there, Kev. You've been critical of buy right ETFs, right? Um, listeners that may not know, a buy right is um, holding one ETF and selling a one month call against it. 
right? There's actually an ETF out there, TLTW, that is a buy right bond ETF, and yet they continue to expand in assets under management. What do you think investors are missing? Why is this getting so popular? Is this an immediate gratification type of trade that's coming about? Tell us a little bit about the buy right ETF. Well, you know, Tony, it started because one of my broker pals sent me some stuff. Uh, it was the, it was the end of the month and they started talking about the effect that the rolling of this option was going to have. And specifically it was on the NASDAQ for whatever reason, the NASDAQ seems to be the one that's attracting real big size. Okay. And so, and there's an index there and it's called, um, where are we here? What's it called? The, the CB, CBOE NASDAQ 100 buy right V2 UCITS index. Who knows what that means? It, it's just, but this is the index. It's super popular. As you mentioned, it's it's basically just buying the queues, selling a one month call and doing this, right? And rolling it every month. And at first it seems great. You know, like you're going to earn a yield. You're going to like, if the stock market goes up, you get called away, you make the money and you just keep redoing this over and over and over again. Seems terrific. But when you stop and think about it, you know, we know that buying the underline and selling a call is the same as selling a put, right? So in essence, what this strategy is doing is selling one month puts every every month and just rolling, selling one month puts. And if you thought that one month of volatility was kind of expensive, then I would almost argue I could understand why you might do this. Like there's lots of sophisticated pension funds and people with, you know, long, deep, deep pockets that enter into long, uh, you know, like short volatility programs where they execute it smartly. But this just doesn't seem like one of those cases. Like you're actually selling a call or a part of the curve that is cheap. And the reason it's cheap is because most people buy out of the money puts and sell calls to fund those puts. So there's that what's known as the skew. Yeah. So if you said to me, you know what, I'm going to do this trade in a disciplined matter and I'm going to sell what I think is expensive skew on an ongoing basis, then I could almost think that this is a good trade. But instead, they're selling what everyone else is selling. And if everybody's selling, then it's going to be cheap, right? And so you're selling this, what everyone else is selling. And if you think about it, you're kind of, you have limited upside of your right. And in a t situation like 2021 or 2020 or 2008, the thing goes no bid. Next thing you know, you're down 20%. And yes, you've sold the call for 2% or whatever, but very quickly, it just looks like a straight long, like the right. call is not helping you. Right. So I did some math and I went and looked at this, like, you know, what does the return look like of this index? And I think it started in September of 2005. And so if I done it right, it looks like the CBOE has returned 5.65% on an annualized basis. And during that period, the NASDAQ total return was 14.72. Now, you know, that's, you might say, but it didn't lose. But here's the kind of interesting part. The, the CBOE kind of buy right index, the volatility was 16%. The NASDAQ in volatility was 22%. And when you go look at the sharp, the sharp of the CBOE index was 0.27. And the NASDAQ was 0.83. So you could have actually just gone and owned half the NASDAQ. So just own half the position of the NASDAQ 
and actually made more money over this period with less risk with a better sharp. So I, I just I, I I don't get why these things are so popular, Tony. Like it just it just because I, people can't think like you, Kev. People well, people hand you a Rubik's cube that's all mixed up in a Bloomberg, and you sit there and you twist it around and you hand us back a perfect Rubik's cube. Not everybody can do that, right? Well, Tony, usually I, the way I I fix a Rubik's cube is I just take off the stickers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. So listen, Kev, we have we, we've covered an enormous amount of ground and I still want to cover at least one or two more topics, but we have to go in a little bit of a speed round type. OK, of let's go. OK, yeah. Um, there's basically two topics I want to touch on. You can go in any direction you want. I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in Japan, because I think that it's wagging the markets a little bit. And before we hang up, I need to get your view on gold as a Canadian gold viewer at the very least. So take those in whatever direction you want. We could talk dollar yen at one one forty three, you know, um, ten year JGBs yielding sixty basis points, rah rah rah, up from forty basis points, or go in any direction you want. What do you want to do? Yield curve. Okay, let's go, let's do Japan. Let's just talk about all of the assets because I think they're all intertwined. Yeah. Japan is stimulating, no doubt about it. Everyone else raised rates. Japan didn't raise rates. They stuck with their zero policy. And not only that, they stuck with their YCC, which is yield curve control. They are slowly weaning themselves off of YCC, but it is slow. I w listened to this great interview the other day with Luke Ellis, the uh, CEO at Man uh, Financial. And he talked about how he went to Japan and he spoke to the central bankers and he spoke to the kind of finance folks. And they said they are deathly afraid of inflation kind of rolling over and going back down. Last year, they saw for the first time, they saw increases in pay of their workers, but it was mainly with the large corporations because the government told them to do it. Okay. So they are stimulating. And one of the things that people kind of forget is that YCC is kind of, it's it's similar to QE, but it's even kind of more scary because instead of saying, I'm going to do a certain quantity, which is quantitative easing, they say, I'm going to go and buy whatever bonds I need to, to keep this right here. So in essence, they are saying, I'll do as much bonds as you want at this price. I will expand the balance sheet as much as I can to keep it there. Okay. So if I said to you that the government, the U.S. government was doing QE in this environment and, you know, forcing people to have raises and doing all this stimulative stuff, you'd be like, what should you do? I should sell the currency. I should buy the stock market and I should probably sell the long end of the bond market. So I think that that's occurred, especially with the currency. But the trouble is the currency now is so cheap because it became a funding currency. that it's actually just... Dirt, dirt cheap. I went to Japan for a couple of weeks, Tony, and I can't tell you. I was, I was yeah. like worried that I was doing the math wrong because I was like, this can't be this cheap to eat here. It was just dirt cheap. So long and short of it is, not only have they gone and done the stimulative, but policies, they've also changed their attitude about the stock market. So the stock market used to be no one cared. They just kind of weren't were that interested in it. They've gone and they've said, anybody that's not trading above book value. You either have to tell us how you're going to get it above book value or, you know, fix it. Otherwise, you're going to get delisted. There's a huge change in attitude. So you're going to get more buybacks. You're going to get more positive kind of market friendly, uh, you know, policies from all these companies. It is dirt cheap. It is under owned. They're doing all the right things. They're stimulating. Their economy is going to fly. They're going to have an inflationary boom. You got to be careful. You need to kind of 
be careful about shorting the currency. I still think that eventually we actually get, it'll be a positive for the currency as money flows into there. But mm -hmm. the long and short of it is long stocks, short JGBs, and I think long currency timing on the last one's a little bit tougher to tell. Oh, I like that strategy right there. Very good, very good. Kev, let's keep plowing away because we got the clock ticking here. Tell me what you think of gold at last sale, 19 and a quarter. It can't seem to break through that double top at 2080. It seems to fall back when interest rates rise. Tell me what you think. Okay, so a lot of the gold bulls are so disappointed and they're just, they feel like, oh God, we had all this inflation. It didn't work. It's just awful. And I hear this time and time and time again. And I and I push back. I push back hard because gold is sensitive to real interest rates and to the dollar. And so we've had a period over the last kind of year and a half where the five-year tip yield, which is the, the real yield, went from minus 200 basis points to positive 200 basis points. At the same time, the dollar index went from 92 and a half to 115 for a little while there on the spike, right? It's back down, but at the so if you went and looked at the kind of just the, the simple correlation or whatever, you know, you dual axis charts that everyone's getting mad about, you would have said that gold actually should be $1,200 to $1,400 based upon those two variables, based upon the previous relationship. So whereas most people are upset that it didn't do better, I'm ecstatic it didn't do worse. Yeah. And I look at those things, I think that real rates, which is very different than nominal rates, but real rates are going to go down from here. I think that the US dollar will likely over the long run go down from here. And I think that gold, uh, the environment for it changed dramatically in the Russian-Ukraine war when mm -hmm. the West confiscated reserves. And when the West confiscated reserves, it basically said to other countries, be careful about your US dollar reserves because we can take those away from you. And if I was China sitting on the largest reserves in the world, trillions of dollars or whatever it is, and yet you look at how much gold they own, it's 3% of those reserves versus kind of, you know, Russia was at 30 or something and lots of countries are at 10. Okay. I would, if I was China, I would just from a prudent, you know, prudent back, you know, backstop, I would say, I have to buy gold. I have to start moving some of our reserves into this. I would just do a certain amount every you know day, every month, and I would just put myself on a program. So ultimately, I believe gold is going higher because central banks are realizing that they need to own more of it because of the actions taken during this war. Kev, does the formation of this new currency among the BRICS, is this affecting your gold view at all? Or can you kind of keep that in a separate box or is it all one part of the story? Because it so, could be related a little in some ways. Uh, yeah, I don't think it is. I know, listen, I, I, I'm in some gold bug kind of channels. I don't know how I got there, but I, I'm there. <laughs> Same. Same. <laughs> I, and, uh, and I see all the, them all excited about this gold, this BRICS currency that's backed by gold. Like, First of all, Tony, if, if this was to really happen, like how many people know are, are involved in this? It's like, it's literally, you know, multiple, multiple countries, like tens, twenties. Yeah. And then think about everyone that would be involved. And so my point is that if it ever did happen, gold wouldn't be up 20, $30 beforehand. It would be up two, three, four hundred, five hundred $500 beforehand, because there's no way everyone would keep it 
like quiet. So I'm a seller that this will all happen anytime soon. I don't, it doesn't affect my reasoning at all. I, I try to ignore that, the noise there. I think that maybe over the long run, it, it, it'll be another positive. And if I'm wrong, Tony, so be it goes up for that. But I, I no, I'm, I'm yeah. not buying it because of that. No, very good to know. It's good to know. I want to know what was behind your thought process. And I like the idea that China waking up to the fact that they don't have enough gold reserves is might be a likely reason why gold hasn't collapsed while real rates have backed off. Right. So you can right. look at it two ways. And I've been looking at it the way that you have, where if you chart gold against real rates, real rates have backed off. And you're like, how the hell is gold hanging in here? Right. right? There's some level of positive attribution to gold because of that. So I think you're on to something. Um, with who might the buyer be and things like that. So I think that's a really important level of thinking. All right. Kev, I think we covered pretty much all of the bases that I wanted to cover with you. It was an intense discussion. We talked about, you know, the trajectory of the bond market. We talked about interest rate hikes being stimulative, the 60-40 portfolio, equal weight versus market cap. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to? Uh, you know, if you wanted kind of a punt, something to look at, go have yeah. a look at uh, the fact that uh, I was listening to Mark Fisher the other day, who's who's one of my absolute heroes. Yeah. I think if, if you're at all interested in in day trading, go buy his book. But anyways, if you, Mark Fisher was talking about how the indexers had to buy and roll nat gas and boil in terms of the amount of contracts that this ETF boil has of the outstanding natural gas uh, kind of uh, open interest is huge. And not only that, it's all in one month. And it just creates an interesting situation where if, like, let's just imagine we got a hurricane or something and that we have 30% of the open interest that needs to roll. And not only that, it's a negative gamma situation in terms of they need to buy more as it goes up because it's a levered ETF. I just think it's an interesting uh, thing to look at. Yeah, well, we'll keep a close eye on that and what could be, um, you know, natural gas has been kind of quiet, but it's one of those commodities that kind of sneaks up on you and starts flying around the board pretty quickly. Right. We may be set up for that. So, Kev, that was a pretty well-rounded discussion. I think we covered, I mean, everything that I could think of. You unpacked a lot of puzzles and I had a lot of eureka moments. So thank you very <laughs> much for that. And uh, I hope our audience got as much value out of it as I did. Well, thank you for having me. And if anyone wants to see some of my work, please feel free to give me an email. Kevin at the Macro Tours, and I'm happy to send some stuff along. That's perfect. That's all we needed to hear was where people can reach you. Kevin at the Macro Tours sounds like it'll get them there. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much, Kevin, for participating in this. I thought it was a fantastic conversation. Thanks, man. Great to see you, and too bad we can't go drinking now. Yeah, I know, but we'll do, <laughs> a, we'll do a combo again soon to see how we did on some of these predictions. I thought it was awesome. Okay, thanks, Tony. Great job, Kevin. Thank you. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 